0: Where's it coming from?
1: Let's find out. I'm Barbara, one of the hosts of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. Before this episode about the haunted asylum on the hill begins, I wanted to tell our listeners a few things about it. All of what we talk about in this first of two episodes comes from historical sources and eyewitness testimony. In the show notes, I'm listing the sources where we found our information so listeners can find out more if they like. We delve deeply into the history of the gigantic Kirkbride building that has overlooked Athens, Ohio for over 100 years. There's a century of events, personalities, stories, heartbreaks, horrors, and triumphs in this episode, and it's intense. So intense, I have to say, it isn't appropriate for children and adults of sensitive emotional constitutions to listen to. In telling the story of the ridges, We also tell some of the history of mental health treatment in the United States, and that can be a very upsetting topic to discuss. There are issues we touch upon that are very disturbing, but we found we couldn't be true to the story of the Ridges without looking directly at these unhappy aspects of history. To be more specific, this episode contains references to violence, rape, abuse of patients, and somewhat graphic descriptions of brain surgery. If you are easily upset by any of these topics, it's best to skip this episode and wait until next week's episode when we talk about the hauntings at this famous historical site in Athens. This all said, I hope we did justice to the massive story of the haunted asylum on the hill. Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me are
0: Kendra Mauer
1: and Morgana. (laughs) This episode is our first in-depth look at one factor that gave Athens its ghostly reputation, the haunted asylum on the hill. Now called the Ridges, the old Athens lunatic asylum looms over our small college town, staring down from its perch high on a long ridge top across the Hawking River. What is it about old asylums that frightens us so? I think
2: one of the major things about it is simply that it is a place for mentally ill people and mental illness can be extremely unnerving to people. Um, there are a lot of misconceptions about mental illness and mentally ill people. There is not the best understanding about it even today. And throughout history, there's been even less of an understanding of mental illness and old asylums sort of encapsulate all of that story. They encapsulate the history of the treatment of the mentally ill and the research
0: about mental illness. And I think there's a certain amount of lore that goes with it because there have been so many programs where they record in haunted asylums. Yes. And I think that kind of builds a reputation.
1: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Mental illness is scary to people because it is, it is the epitome of the loss of control. You lose control of your mind. You lose control of your thoughts. You lose control of your emotions. Yeah. And it's from the inside. It's scary too. Yes.
2: Like it really is. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm bipolar. Uh, And it is not always an easy thing to have. (laughs) And it can be pretty, uh, pretty unsettling, even from the inside. Um, And I think that's, that's one of the things that interests me about the ridges um, on kind of a personal level is because if I'd been born a couple decades earlier, (laughs) I I always have to wonder like, Hmm, would I have ended up there? for day treatment, or maybe even depending on how much earlier I was born, would I have ended up there for longer than day treatment?
0: (laughs) Or postpartum for a lot of us. We would have ended up in an institution.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, I think that, you know, once you have the the loss of control of yourself then you get put in a place where you have no more control
0: you lose your autonomy
1: you lose your sense of identity you lose your autonomy your ability to come and go and so that to most people is just horrific on top of that there's all of these stories historically of how people were treated in mental institutions back from the 18th century on. Um, the word bedlam comes from the St. Mary of Bethlehem Hospital in London, where their idea of taking care of what they called lunatics was to chain them up to a wall, maybe let them have some clothes, throw water on them, beat them, and then charge upper crust people money to go and look at them and point and laugh because that's nice. That's pretty much
2: the, the the worst example I could think of.
1: And that's the example that a lot of people are gonna go towards because we we like we like worst examples in, in our the culture. Dramatic.
2: They make a good story too. It is a great story, right there. And it is it is an undeniable fact that mental health care throughout history has been decent
1: or really bad.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it's there. There does or somewhere in between on that spectrum.
0: It's never been good. It it's has just been decent awesome. or abysmal. It
2: really it's and that you see that through history because in America, we had Nellie Bly, who went to one of the New York asylums in 1887 um, for her article 10 days in a madhouse, where she was, she basically committed herself in the guise of. A mentally ill patient and lived there and reported on the conditions which were bad again we had people who were restricted in their movements chained or straight jacketed not clothed people who were neglected people who were forced to sit on benches for hours at a time without speaking um and she almost didn't get out because when she was done gathering all of this evidence and all of these facts, she could not convince them that she was actually a reporter. So her editors had to come and get her out.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, she did such a good job convincing the judge who she was brought toward uh, to to be committed that she was insane that anything she did after that was considered a symptom of insanity, saying that she could speak English because she pretended not to speak English. She pretended to be an immigrant, um, saying, no, I can speak English. See speaking English right here, talking to you and that she could read and that she was a female reporter, which I mean, 1887, there weren't a whole lot of those. She was pretty remarkable that in that she was a newspaper reporter in the first place they just were like well that's a delusion and so her editors basically had to come springer they had to come and go to the admitting doctor and go uh excuse me we would like our reporter back please
0: well and they're also imagine someone coming up prove you're sane you, you how can't do you, you do can't that? exactly you can't do that and I think that there's a little bit of a stigma there too because if you get committed, how do you get out? Yeah, so there's it's such a tense situation with mental health.
1: Yeah, um, it really is. And, and at that time, the way that you were, you became a patient at one of these facilities. There, you could go and and go willingly but most of the time a family member took you before a judge and a court's doctor who examined you and signed the papers and there's a problem with that the the judges could be corrupted they could they could have been paid off and that did happen and we know these things and that makes us nervous <laughs>
2: As well, honestly, it makes sense, and we probably should be nervous. And that was part of Nellie Bly's point: was how easy it is to be committed when one is already sane in
1: 1887, absolutely, absolutely. in New York. She was and, not wrong, <laughs> and and then in 1946, Life Magazine put out an article called "Bedlam 1946." It was written by Albert Q. Mazel, and the photographer for the article was Jerry Cook. And the photographs are still on the internet. The article's still on the internet. It's well worth a read. It's horrific. Um, the photographs show naked people um, hiding under benches, curled up. There are people tied to benches. There are people barely dressed lined up on benches in, in jackets at various uh, uh, mental health uh, state hospitals, mental health hospitals across the country. This comes on the heels of people seeing the photographs that came out of the concentration camps in Germany that Americans had liberated, and it shocked the nation because the whole point that Mr. Mazel made was we liberated people in Europe from conditions like this why are we doing this to our own people and in fact some of the people in these photographs are veterans who liberated those people and this is how we treat them so that luckily that started a big round of reform especially in Ohio because one of the one of the asylums where those photographs were taken was in Cleveland State Hospital. And so it, it was horrific. And the people who supplied the information for these articles were conscientious objectors. They were very religious men who did not want to serve in the Army, so they were sent to volunteer in mental institutions. And being very religious people, they took note of what they saw and they made affidavits as to the truth of what they saw and got the information to reporters. And when they say stacks of affidavits a foot high, I think that's not, I don't think they were kidding that it was true. And so knowing that you can get that information and knowing that films and and books like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, that then became a very famous film, they're not based on lies. They're not based on exaggerations. In some cases, they tone it down a lot. Um, and, the, you know, another reason that we look at the ridges, that's what we call the the uh, asylum now. That's its name now. We just look at the the architecture of it and it's scary. And it, it is. is. It is so yeah. squished into our heads from media. It's very gothic. Is, yes.
0: It's it, a heavy-handed gothic. It like is
2: extremely gothic and it yeah. is looming on a ridge over the town. It looks like an old playbill for a horror
1: movie. Yes.
2: yeah, But yeah. it looks like that. Because it's a Kirkbride plan.
1: Yes. Building. We will get to that in a few minutes. We will discuss what that means. No, that's okay. I got excited. It's okay.
0: That's one of the things about this episode is it's really hard to do things in order because it's so focused on... There are so many things to focus on.
1: And it's all interconnected. It It really is. It's like... It's it's a thing. But, you know, when, when Morgana said it's very gothic looking, it is sort of the preternatural gothic horror novel from the 1960s and 70s cover. You could see the Kirkbride building of the Ridges up on a hill with the moonlight in the dark. It's a it's a dark background, but you can still see the shape of the towers, you know, and there's one light on and the tallest tower. And then there's a woman running away down the hill with a white dress on or a nightgown or something. She's looking over her shoulder, or she's screaming. It's one or the other, or both, or both looking over her shoulder and screaming. And uh, that is in just it's indelibly printed on our brains. Yeah, like it's you associate that
2: very quickly yeah. when you look at extreme gothic architecture it just happens
1: it's it's the strength and power of of mass media really it 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 creates images that stick in our heads um and and there are stories about the ridges that everybody there, knows
2: there are so many stories
1: and and these are the stories that we all hear that we're all told are true and we we researched all the stories and that we could think of that we, we should say,
0: knows th- is in quotes.
1: Yes, yes. These are air quotes things everybody knows. Air quotes. Air quotes. Um, and like I said, we researched as many of them as we could. We may have missed something. If we did, I want you to email us with the email address I'm going to give you at the end, and you can let us know, or you can talk to us on Facebook because. That's, that's, we, if we need to do a second episode, we will. We're
2: committed now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> committed. You said committed. No, I, I did not know. do that one on purpose. Okay. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. All right. So the first thing everybody knows about the asylum on the hill in Athens is that it is haunted. haunted. It is so haunted. Everybody knows it. Everybody will tell you about it and they'll tell you various reasons why. And it is actually, we we can't myth bust that one because we've yeah, experienced I'm, it ourselves. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty convinced personally that it is
2: haunted. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> As for why, that's that's where you know we'll get on we'll get onto that later. Uh, and then there's the stain. Okay, I hate that. I hate that it's called that. It makes me mad. But there is a stain, and I was told when I first moved to Athens that it was from a murdered or abused woman. And she cursed the area, and that's why her body stained the floor in the uppermost uh, floor of the ridges in the main building. And that she's buried there at at an unmarked grave. None of this is actually accurate that that and there's other sensational bits and pieces around it but but that's not it um first off go ahead no go ahead go okay because you're you're getting into it and we're we're listing things first (laughs) i know but we we also are gonna you know kind of bust as we go okay so my bad it's all right it's all right Uh, the lady had a name. She is not a stain. Her name was Margaret Schilling, and she was a wife and mother. And she has descendants living today. She was not playing a game of hide-and-seek necessarily, and she was not forgotten by the nurses. She got into a ward that was left unlocked, by a handyman who was working on the, um, heating system and nobody knew she had gotten in there and she got lost in there because the door locked when it shut and the handyman did not know to go and unlock the door. Um, she was one of the patients who was least likely to cause problems. So she was allowed to wander the facility at will pretty much so long as she came back in the evenings, she was fine. She wandered the grounds. This is also a feature of the Athens state hospital. It had an open door policy pretty much from the beginning so that the people who were nonviolent and not suicide risks were allowed to move around and go out onto the grounds um they didn't necessarily have to have an attendant with them and she was one of the people who was considered okay to do that so nobody forgot her they looked and looked and looked for her they thought maybe she had wandered off the grounds into the town and they were searching there too unfortunately it was in 1978 which was the cold, one of the coldest winters on record in Athens and the area that she got stuck in, that attic was unheated because it hadn't been used in years. And so she probably froze to death. Um, they found her body weeks later. And this is where the sensational part starts happening. She had taken her clothes off and folded them neatly and then laid down in the light coming from a window. Um, and died and that's extremely sad and and the the naked part freaks people out but there's this thing when you're freezing to death that's called uh what's it called paradoxical undressing thank you paradoxical undressing where you i was feel reading like, about the let love pass recently <laughs> where, where you feel like you're burning up even though you are freezing to death and so you take off your clothes. And oftentimes, oddly, you fold them up neatly. And then you lay down and you stop breathing. And what happened was, is they found her weeks later after she had started to decompose. And the reason there's a stain has nothing to do with a curse. It has to do with after they moved her body the fluids that had gathered under her body, they tried to clean it up and they used something that had potassium phosphate in it. And it created what is known as adipocere, which is essentially soap, sadly. Um, But it's, it happens when a body decomposes under cold conditions and it got rubbed into the, the stone concrete floor. And because it had pores, it sort of soaked it up. And that's why there is a stain there. So there is a stain. That is not a rumor. That is the truth. But it wasn't the seen- Yes. Some people have seen it. And no, you can't just go there and see it now. It is not on public display. Some of the the things I'm going to be saying about the ridges, like I have seen it, is
2: because I was given a tour. Um, When I was
1: younger. And so um but, but it's not there for public viewing, which would I think be very um disrespectful. Uh, so the stain is of Margaret Schilling is still there. She is buried in um in a a cemetery. Her family came and got her body and and buried her in a cemetery in Perry County, where she was from. Um, nobody, you know, put her in there and forgot about her. She was, she was a person, and I think that we should just stop saying the stain. So we're not going to say it anymore in this podcast. Okay, moving on from that very cheerful story, <laughs> we're going to go worse. Ice pick
2: lobotomies were performed at the Ridges, which is true. Yep. It is very true. It is unfortunately, disturbingly true. Um, This is one of those things about mental health care in the past. That is one of those... People didn't know what they were doing and did horrible things.
0: It's it's effectively experimenting on live subjects.
2: Yeah. And it's awful. And it is inexcusable, personally, I think. Uh, and that is true. That is, that is Dr. Freeman. Dr. We're Walter gonna, Freeman.
1: We're going to talk a lot about him. We are. We're, grumpily. We're, we're not going to start now, but we're going to talk about him a lot. Um, Kendra, you want to take the the next one? That is actually fun and cheerful.
0: Yes. Yeah, actually a fun one. one.
1: We give you the nice one.
0: And yes, there was an alligator that lived in the fountain. He didn't need anyone. They may have fed him kittens and stuff like that. But nobody really talks about that. So we don't really, we can't necessarily corroborate that one. But when you think about the time. And alligator needed to eat. Um, He was brought inside when it got cold and eventually just got too big and aged out of the system.
1: As it were.
0: So to speak. His
1: name was Jack Crocs, by the way. That's right. And there do exist photographs of him. And there are people living in Athens who still remember coming to visit relatives and staring at the crocodile. He's actually an alligator. They called him a crocodile. They called him Crocs. Um, and they, they remember seeing him and being scared that he was going to eat their mommy when, when mom would go and take pictures of him. They didn't like that. Um, he, he was actually from, uh, a, a member, member of the staff who went to Florida and brought back a baby crocodile with his kids. Yes, we did at the time. <laughs> and he thought, Hey, let's let it swim in the, in the fountain. And everybody loved him. So, and he lived in the in the steam boiler room in the winter because it was warm. I don't know what they fed him. I I I don't think meat about it of it. some yeah. kind. But yeah, clearly because he lived for many years. There's a picture of him. He looks to be about three and a half feet long, almost four feet long. Because I've yeah. seen the fountain, which isn't in its place when he lived there. It's actually on another piece of the property. Um, in a garden, and I've seen the size of it, so I can judge from the picture he was uh, almost four feet long, so he was he was cool,
2: and that's that's just a delightful bit of what you would think would be an urban legend, but is not actually an urban legend i know
1: I know <laughs> um, and I like his name, Jack Crox,
2: yes, that is a great name
1: okay so There is a myth, a persistent one, that there were shackles in the basement. Now, there were things in the basement that were unusual and fascinating, but they were not shackles. Um, And I'm going to put all of the sources for this information in our show notes. But I will say that Tom O'Grady, the director of the Southeast Ohio History Center here in downtown Athens, says no. There were no shackles down there. There is a persistent myth that that's where the violent offenders were kept. And that's not true. Um, The people who were the most disturbed were kept in the farthest wings, the farthest ends of the wings in the regular building. They weren't kept in the basement. But what was in the basement? Because this is cool. Somebody tell me what, what was in the basement.
0: Trains, yeah, trains. Yes, there were trains in the basement to take food from building to building, and then the train, w- little steam train, would show up, and the dumb waiter would bring all the food up, and then the train would go back and get more stuff, and that was the way they ferried stuff from building to building. At the Athens Mental Health, and I think it's really cool, actually. It is. Yeah, one of the Hilton things about this building. building is that it was self sufficient and. That was part of it was the fact that they could do secret underground things like trains.
1: Trains. I mean, that's just awesome. A steam train yes. under steam a train. building. Yeah, I love that.
2: Um, and again, there are tunnels under the ridges that a train would have been in because I have seen them. I have also
1: not seen shackles, and I was in the basement once. And you can, you can see that the brickwork along the walls in those basements. There are no places where shackles would have been sunk into the wall that was repaired when they pulled the shackles out to hide them from the people having the tours. It's all the original brickwork. There, there are no big iron hoops. Yeah, to there hold aren't chains. Brackets. There's nothing. There's, There's nothing also like not tons of bats dripping walls,
2: disembodied skeletal hands, or any other super creepy typical gothic bits and bobs that you might be associating with an
1: insane asylum. Yeah. None of that. Okay. Now here's one of my favorite, uh, weird stories. And I, I, I heard this when I first moved to Athens that the cemetery has a circle of gravestones where witches and Satanists perform rituals and necromancy and seances. And the graves that are in all of the cemeteries, because there's like three or four cemeteries up there, only have numbers because no one cared to put names on them. Let's deal with the first part first, or the second part first. That is not true. The numbers that were used were used, A, only for patients whose family could not be identified and and brought to them or who could not travel to get them or could not pay to have them brought home for burial so the people who were buried there were not necessarily just you know tossed in there with no care but they were given numbers because of the stigma of mental illness and that it wasn't that they were to be forgotten they kept a book called The Grave Book, which is now housed at the Ohio Ohio University Library. And each number corresponds with a name. And an act of the legislature in Ohio was done to make that a historical document so that people can look up their family members if they suspect that they had a family member who was in the asylum so they can find them.
0: And they're able to replace the headstone with a named stone if they choose, if I recall.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Yeah. And the, some families have,
0: I yeah. believe.
1: Yes. The National Alliance for Mental Illness, NAMI, uh, the Athens branch has taken over care of the graveyards and has you know, fixed gravestones that were broken and has helped uh, family members find their um, ancestors. They have put flags on the Civil War veterans who were there. Um, and there, I think there are a couple of World War II veterans as well. Um, and there might even be some Vietnam War veterans, but I don't know that for sure. But they put flags there. They have ceremonies on Memorial Day every year. And they will help have special ceremonies when people find their people there. And they will help them put a new gravestone up so that the the name is remembered and they can be honored. Um, As for that circle of gravestones, the only explanation I've gotten out of that was that it was loose gravestones that somebody picked up and put into a circle as a prank that they, that there aren't actually people buried in that circle formation that that was probably just a person certainly probably wasn't a self-respecting athens witch I, I hate say. you
0: a little bit right now cuz you just ruined my college life
1: I'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry but that's but that's also Tom O'Grady he said that yeah. he said that it was probably a prank But Which makes sense. Yeah.
0: That's a people suck. Not an asylums
1: suck moment there. Also, if anybody is up there performing seances and whatnot, it's probably teenage kids fooling around trying to talk to ghosts.
2: Again, a people suck. Yes. Not an
1: asylums suck (laughs) moment.
0: Or a people will be people.
1: Yeah,
2: people will be people.
1: Kids will do... Dopey, disrespectful things. I
2: I cannot think of a graveyard in the world that has not had dumb kids doing dumb kid things at some point in them. Or just is dumb it polite? People. Or just dumb people? Is it polite? No. Should they? No.
0: <laughs> Will they? Yes. I, I just got to say, one of the neat things for me, I have a different understanding of cemeteries because my mom comes from New Orleans and she lived right near right next to a cemetery. And that's where they played hide and seek when yeah. they were kids. So to me, it's a whole it's kind of a different cultural experience. They they don't play in them anymore because. People doing people things, but I always kind of like the idea that her playing hide and seek with her ancestors.
2: I have no issues with that. I have no issues with people having a walkthrough. I'm mostly talking about people like. Destroying. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like shoving tombstones over or like. Because to me, there's a difference between blatant disrespect and, and just existing with the dead as someone who's living because the dead and the living are both part of life.
1: Yeah. I I used to I come from a family uh who went up at least twice a year to clean the grave of my aunt who I was named after. Um she died right after I was born, not long after. And she was buried in a really beautiful cemetery up on the hill overlooking Charleston. And that's a high Victorian cemetery that has the gothic mausoleum that looks like some lady in a white nightgown should be running away from screaming with a full moon and and a light on at the top
0: yeah, and kind of a yeah, fixation on this it really does look like that man it speaks to you.
1: but i i used to go it has all these wonderful sculptures in it and i was allowed to walk among the sculptures and there was there was a little angel that I used to sit next to and talk to it. And then there was a lamb on a, a baby's grave that I used to go and I would pet the lamb.
2: Does and every so, kid in a cemetery pet the lambs? Cause I pet the lambs too.
1: Yeah. It's the same cemetery. I'll bet too. Probably. <laughs> yeah. But I, I always give them a pat.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly always did when I was a kid because it was like, you knew that was a kid and you were a kid and you were like, okay, we can be kids together and I'm going to just sort of talk to you briefly and be like, hi, I hope heaven's nice. Cause you're eight. And yeah. Yeah. What else are you going to do? Or you're five. We came from a slightly morbid family. I suspect. Yeah. I was, I was taken to many graveyards a lot too by
1: yeah. Grammy and Poppy. Yeah. My family, what can I say? All right, so the next myth, and Kendra's going to take point on this one. And this is, th- she's going to go and explain all this, and we're going to jump in with it.
0: Yeah, please do, because this one is about Billy Milligan. Um, Billy Milligan was a patient at the um, Athens Mental Health Center in the late 70s. He was put in there because he had raped three women on the OSU campus. Um, He was in Worthington for a short time awaiting. Well, they tried to figure out if he was mentally stable enough to stand trial. They got him. They found out there that what they called then was split personality disorder. Um, Once they figured that out, they figured out he was uh, sane enough to stand trial, stable enough to stand trial. And after the trial, they moved him down to Athens. Um, Part of the reason they moved him to Athens was there was a doctor call there and he had experience working with multiple personalities and he was interested in working with him. He stipulated that if he's going to work with this. Person. That. This that Billy Milligan had to have the same freedoms as everybody else at that mental health center Um, that includes unsupervised walking around a college town and the grounds. Um, He was coached on how to deal with people on the street because they were worried because there was such a media frenzy around this whole situation because it was it was it was a mess um Billy never should have been there. He was the, a violent offender and that's not what Athens Mental Health Center was all about. Um but when he would go into town, people treated him fairly decently. Um then he was also allowed to so the the patients could have their own money. Most of them could only carry around 20 bucks now and again. Billy Milligan was allowed to paint Sell his paintings and keep the money. And he acquired quite a bit of money during his time, um, enough actually at one point to buy a car. Um, where this also took off is author Daniel Keyes, who was just coming off of a best selling book, Flowers for Algernon, um, got involved in the story as well. Dr. Call and Daniel Keyes were friends. So they were kind of working together with him. Um, so they have this best selling author coming in interviewing Billy Milligan, co-writing a book. It's not that Daniel Keyes wrote it. It's called co-writing because they did it together. And Billy Milligan ended up getting some of the royalties. More on that later. Daniel Keyes was interviewing him from the very beginning of when he, when he got there and he saw him through the whole diagnosis and um, the part where Dr. Call tried to, Fuse the 24 personalities that they ended up identifying, which seems like a bit much, fusing them into one personality that could handle society, and that was called the teacher. Um, Eventually, he was supposedly, he did this and eventually was released after bouncing around to other institutions for a little bit, but he had erratic behavior. He was a violent defender. He should not have been at this institution. He had, at one point, when I went to OU my first year, I was in what's called the Convocation Center, which is the basketball arena. They're dorm rooms underneath the bleachers, essentially. And one of the first things we found out was that Billy Milligan would, would at one point, ran around on the roof, like eye level with all of our dorm rooms. So that's kind of one of those unsettling stories where that that's where Billy Milligan kind of came into my life. At some point, Billy, Billy, during his treatment, Billy Milligan was allowed a lot, again, a lot more freedoms. And one of the things that he was involved in was distributing the drugs to the patients. Um, I can't even. I I I don't
2: understand that. You've got a
0: you've got a rapist distribute. So, of course, he took advantage of vulnerable patients and at one point had an affair with one of the nurses who eventually left. But he was still there. And I don't understand how this was permitted. Because um,
2: the doctor apparently forgot yeah. about professional ethics. And this is one so, of those
0: problems. <laughs> here's one of the one of the things that kind of happened. So you have Dr. Call, who is really interested in making a split personality clinic for people like Billy Milligan. So he says, I've got this, this major case, this, it has national notoriety. I got this guy. This guy is going to be my, my story. And you have Daniel keys, a writer who's not very prolific, but is coming off of a bestseller goes, I see a story in this. So you have two people who kind of go, Hey, we got this guy. And we need we need this. And you also have this guy who's like, it's all nothing but money and win for me. So it was this triangle of people that just should never have been together. There, I I perceive in the the research that I've done that there was manipulation on all parts. Mm-hmm. Um
1: I I was just going to mention that Daniel Keyes taught at Ohio University. Yes.
0: Thank you. He was a professor.
1: Um, So that's why he was, he was here. Yeah. Um, And uh, my issue with Billy Milligan being at a low security facility. Minimum. Yeah. Like uh, the Athens State Hospital. Yeah. Yeah. It always had an open door policy. It always was very progressive from the very beginning. Yeah. So why that was thought to be a good idea is beyond my comprehension. If the doctor wanted to work with him, I don't know why he was allowed to say, well, my patient has to have the same exact treatment as these other patients because he was not like those other patients.
0: Right. And he, Dr. He Call was, was scrutinized, but yes. I, the only thing I can think is that this patient had the national spotlight, and people just got stupid.
1: I that's that, pa- that's part
2: he of should, it. He should yeah. never have been allowed to hand out other patients' medication. You do not right? do that. That is not how medicine works. Yeah. That's that's not how. That's not that responsible. Happens that's illegal yeah
1: that is illegal he certainly shouldn't have been around female patients at all ever right he was a criminal this is not that he this is not a
2: matter of billy milligan was mentally ill to me this is a matter of billy milligan was a convicted criminal
0: who was mentally ill mentally ill. who was permitted and that's what makes me angry about this whole thing they they took a violent criminal and Put him in the middle of every temptation there is for that dude,
2: and that is an utter and complete yes. failure
0: everywhere. Of
2: now, his doctor, and of the state, yeah. and of the prosecutors,
0: the, and of the judges, the judges yeah. you should,
2: this should not have been allowed. And I lay that firmly upon everyone's door.
0: He is a bag of he is a bag of poop.
2: They should have handed him but, right back.
0: Yeah. He is a bag of poop, but even prior to his conviction, he had raped a couple of women in Hilltop, Columbus, but that he, that he's like, oh, no, they were prostitutes. And, you know, I couldn't perform, so they didn't get paid and they got mad. Yeah. And then. Yeah. They, so. He goes from Athens. He goes to Lima for uh institution for the criminally insane for a stint. Ends up back in Athens And that, at that point, he had a car and was involved in a shooting at one of the staff members' houses. And that's what got him the boot finally from Athens, was there were just like, we're done.
1: All I can think of is if he was allowed around female patients and was taking advantage of them and giving out drugs. Right. How in the, you don't give criminals a key to the drug cabinet and you don't, let a rapist near women who are mentally ill. And you don't let a patient and a staff member have an affair.
0: This is well, uh, I was, yeah. I, I think don't think that, that was one. let involved in that one. I think that just happened. Yeah. <laughs> that's
2: that, just, no, you just, fire her or you say well, she, she did go. She did. Once it
0: went public, once people found out she was done. Yeah. yeah. But she was he was gone. charismatic. She was the the problem, part of the problem was he was charismatic and that's how he pulled the shit. He, some of the pull pulled some of the poop he did you can say? <laughs> so sorry you get a little it. worked up about this one <laughs> because it's just such a galactic failure and i actually have some compassion for this horrible person because everything failed him his his mom moved his whole family moved to ohio from florida great connection and his dad dies his mom gets with a stepdad the stepdad is a monster you can read about it in the book because I don't even want to talk about some of the things that happened to him. But even if a small portion of those things happened, it was beastly. So I under.
1: So if he did <laughs> develop multiple personalities, that's why.
0: That's why. So that's that trauma. That is not the and problem. then. He Him gets kicked out, out of high school. That's not the problem. Him right. being an asshole right. is the
1: problem. Him being gets, a rapist is the issue.
0: Yeah, he gets kicked out of high school. He, they end up in Lancaster at one point. They end, they're they in Columbus at one point. He kind of moves around the central Ohio area. And again, he rapes. And then he doesn't get put through the system properly. And then he comes out and he rapes. And then he doesn't get put through the system properly. And then it's sent to Athens.
2: Where he's enabled for. Some where reason, he can do whatever he wants, and he <laughs> women, and that was that was negligent yeah. by
0: the entirety so of the thing, island.
2: It's like of the hospital I, at that point, and I, I don't understand what was going on then.
0: If I leave a bag of candy on the ground, I'm, and my toddler eats it. Whose fault is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, <sighs> it's horrible. It's horrific. So,
0: not everybody was fully committed to the idea that he had split personality, multiple personality. Um, there were, the media was skeptical, but one of the people that actually worked with him at the time, a David Malawista, I may have butchered that name quoted is quoted as saying he was treated really differently. And I think to the detriment of accurately seeing what was going on with him. And I would agree with that because he sounds- I mean, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not a professional, but I've done enough digging at this point that I'm just like, we will, n- no one will ever know what happened after he was, he was released in, I forget what year. And then 90 something, he went off and just disappeared himself into California. Nobody really heard from him. Like his family had no idea. And even if they did hear from him, they wouldn't have said anything. Um, the state uh, reclaimed some of the money th- uh, that he received from his royalties, which makes me annoys me on another level because a guy's going to need to eat, and it's deserve or not, it doesn't matter. But a, a hungry person is a desperate person. You you let them take care of themselves, and that money's not coming out of the tax base. His life story was was. Written everywhere. Accuracy notwithstanding. But he was used. Let the man eat. Hold the money in trust. Just. Uh,
1: don't Don't more of a failure. all of his ability to feed himself. Ugh. And have a place to live. So that he has to turn to crime again. Again we're talking about. This is the whole prison system. It's, and the justice system. The just
2: thing is a being a mess. mess. And so- I either this shows that the Athens asylum was a complete and utter terrible d- did not function at all at the time that he was there, or it made a lot of exceptions for this th- one star I patient. Think, I think and it, I I suspect It was a bad marriage. Yeah, I think that truth
1: was somewhere in the middle. He should I, never I, have been sent there, is the truth. No. Yeah, that doctor it, could have gone to a different hospital to work. But he refused. Yeah.
0: Well, it was, then, bring he, to he me doesn't get his deal, patient. Yeah, bring him to me, I'll deal him with him my way, or not at all. And that's what he pulled. And or so, not at all.
1: Well, he then, should, it should have been not at all, and yeah. then you just... Too bad. So sad. Yeah. We have all of these other patients we have to look in, look after, mm-hmm. and they were failed.
2: Yeah, but yeah. they were failed by yeah. letting Billy Milligan run rampant. Yeah, and touch medicine, which
0: I know. My br-
2: he's not a doctor. My- he's not a nurse. He's not a doctor. That's illegal. My brain is. Just he's not going- an orderly. That is. I. I'm pretty sure that's very, very illegal. Yeah.
0: I. At least it, it is, is now. So he passed away in 2014 and what's kind of a an, an weird synchronicity is he and Daniel Keyes passed away six months apart in 2014.
1: Yeah. I remember when that happened. Yeah. I, I, I remember seeing that and being like, Oh, that's weird.
0: You know? Yeah. He, he went, uh, Billy Milligan went from Cal- Ohio to California and then back to Ohio where he passed.
1: Wow. So that's, that's, that's actually was true.
0: I'm going to have to breathe deeply for a little bit (laughs) because I'm really passionate about that. I think the, the thing about mental health care is it's never been great. So it's, we have a current crisis. I am going on off the rails here, but we have a crisis, but it's not like it's ever been in a good place. We have a, it's, it seems to go through cycles. It gets really terrible.
2: And then somebody blows the whistle. And then it improves for a while. And then we learn some new stuff. And some yeah. of the new stuff we learn is good. And some of the new stuff we learn is bad. And then it starts dwindling again. Yeah. And, and that cycle just repeats.
0: And I feel like I need to say to be responsible to the Athens Mental Health Center at the time. I And when I got to school, it was 1991. 1989 and it was still open we would walk around and we see we would see patients on you know walking around and it 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 had its place it wasn't a place for violent people it had it began with a great idea with how it started it's just it got messed up in the middle
1: all right we're gonna move on to things we didn't know but that we learned about the first thing that sort of drew my attention was that there were Adina burial and ceremonial mounds on the ridge where the hospital was built. Did not know that, had not heard that. Am not surprised since there are mounds all over the Hawking Valley and all around Athens. So none of that is There are surprising. places in
0: the woods where they pepper the landscape.
1: Yeah. It's it's, they're just everywhere. And that being one of the highest yeah. points that overlooked the Hawking Valley, it makes sense. Okay, so also, 18.5 million bricks were made by hand from clay dug up on the site to build the main building. Stone was quarried nearby to build the foundation the front stairs and the stone hearths the foundation itself is like 2 and 3 feet thick to hold the it's weight huge. of all of the rooms that are in there and we're going to we're going to get to exactly how many rooms there are it is a magnificently huge building and it has stood since 1874.
2: It's one and. Opened. Interestingly enough, of all of the buildings I've been in in Athens, aside from the university buildings, it's the only place where I have not seen slightly slanted floors.
0: Mm-hmm. For because real, because
2: <laughs> this whole house, this whole town, everything is very slightly <laughs> <It> tilted. <tilts.
1: laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Um, because yeah, the Appalachians. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So the man who got the idea to build the asylum in Athens. His name was Dr. William Parker Johnson. He was a military hospital administrator and army doctor during the civil war. And the whole reason that he wanted to bring an asylum to Athens, which is where he was from. It's where he grew up was because he had seen men who were not injured physically during the war but were in the hospitals with what they didn't even call it shell shock until later but it was PTSD and he wrote to his wife I don't know what to do for them but there has to be something so I I like that he took his 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 experience from the civil war and realized that the men who were going to come back from this conflict were going to need help after it was over. And so he pretty much, right after uh, peace was declared, was elected into the Ohio legislature and he came home and he got to work getting the hospital put up here in Athens. And the reason it got to Athens, he was so committed to it. He Got prominent citizens, businessmen, and people connected with the university to raise money to buy up the land from two farmers that was up on that ridge. And they bought the land and then deeded it to the state of Ohio. And that pretty much all the other places that might have gotten the state hospital were like, oh, okay, uh, we we suck. Okay, you don't. Fine. You... Athens gets it.
2: And I find that in a beautiful piece of symmetry, when the hospital closed in 1993, they deeded it back to Ohio university. Yeah. Yeah. Who currently own it
1: today. Yes. Um, what I did not know also was that it was as a facility was fairly self-sustaining. It was not completely self-sustaining, but it was pretty darned close. Um, Most of the food that was eaten by the patients and staff was raised in the farms on site. They had a dairy barn. They had a a piggery. That's what you call where you keep your pigs. It's a piggery. I didn't know that. We pigs. I Uh, love pigs. (laughs) They had meat cattle. They had chickens. They had... Huge gardens and they had orchards and they had uh, bramble fruit and strawberries planted in, in large amounts. And one of the things that the nurses and and attendants did is they helped make preserves. When all of this fruit and, and vegetables came into season, they and the uh, patients made preserves and canned it and kept it it's, and ate it. It's such a woman's institute thing. I know. Right? It's, it's In like, America. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um And what's interesting, I, it again, just, is this was occupational therapy, essentially. Yeah. Patients worked on the farms. They weren't slaves. Most of them had been farmers before they came to the hospital, so they were given useful work to do.
2: And it, it was part of the Kirkbride plan, which... Yes. I think we're still getting to later.
1: Yes, we are. It's also
0: it, forward thinking.
1: It was very forward thinking. The Kirkbride plan, there there are bits and pieces that have come back into to use. Yeah. And then finally, the thing that I found out was how tightly knit the Athens community was to the hospital. And it wasn't just that people from the town worked there, and it wasn't just through economics because uh, goods and services from the town went into the hospital. It also went the opposite way. People in living memory talked about how they would go there to get their milk. They bought milk from there because they produced too much milk at their dairy farm. So they sold it to the townspeople. Again, This is bringing money back into the system so that it all works together. But it was also that the community was proud of the hospital. They were, they were proud of the grounds. Which Uh, were
2: beautiful.
1: They, they had social bonds with the hospital. People would have uh, concerts up there and townspeople would come. People would come to have picnics or go ice skating on the lakes and the ponds that were part of the grounds, which, no longer exist now. Now they're a, uh, a high uh, road, <clears throat> a, a big road next to the river. Um, a road
0: you know, in the moved river.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they, 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 there is, there was still social stigma with the mentally ill, but not in the same way that I expected. So many people said, yeah, my uncle, my uncle was there. And I remember going to visit him there and it was such a peaceful place and we really liked it. And he worked in the dairy barn and, you know, he was always proud of the cows or somebody would say, hey, my dad worked there and and he helped on the farm and he did this, that and the other thing. And he really that was his favorite job that he ever had. And I I just feel like. It was part of Athens in a way that I did not expect. So I'm going to give a, a quick timeline. And then we're going to talk about the Kirkbride plan and, and what that means. So it started in 19, or 1868. Not 1968. 1868. And it was the. That's when the cornerstone was was put down, and a thousand Freemasons and eight thousand other people from all around Ohio, but especially Athens, there was a parade where they crossed the Hawking River from town, went up the giant hill, and there were like, uh, bands and, uh, church choirs who went up the hill they sang they played music they had a ceremony and everybody was very excited and it opened in 1874 and it was built according to the kirkbride plan was which was created by dr thomas kirkbride who was a wealthy quaker and i know quakers are cool i i'm quakers say,
0: are awesome <coughs> I,
1: Quakers come up with great ideas. As a heathen, I can't praise a Quaker too much. They're wonderful people. They come up with great ideas. And he had the idea to build a building that would facilitate the treatment of the mentally ill. Because Because he he had the whole idea of moral treatment. Yes. Moral treatment... Go ahead. Which
2: I you've been talking. Let me talk. All right. You said right, jump I'm, in. I'm trying to jump in. All right. Woman.
1: All right. I'm sorry. I'm bad. <laughs> I spent two days writing you. this. It, <gasps> I know, but you told us all to leap in. I, I I'm know. leaping. I'm bad. All right. Go ahead.
2: So, Thomas Kirkbride had a plan for the moral treatment. It was the moral treatment plan, which included. And this is important as to why the Ridges looks like that. She included kind treatment, nutritious food, meaningful work, occupational therapy. And most important to the design of the main building was access to sunlight and fresh air. Which is why the Ridges, while it is a gothic, it's not a monstrosity. It's actually a very pretty building, but it's very gothic is tall is narrow has huge tall narrow windows everywhere and has long halls lined with windows because as much light and air as possible was supposed
1: to get to as much of the building as was possible it's situated so it faces south which is nice because that makes it have a beautiful view of the river in the town of athens from all of those gigantic windows. The ceilings were at least 12 to 16 feet high. And it has a central portion that that's where the administrative offices were. That's where the administrators lived. So you had doctors living alongside the patients in the same building.
2: The grounds were deliberately beautiful because the beauty of nature and beauty in general was thought to be soothing.
1: Um, Um, Yeah. Um, And those high ceilings meant you had a lot of air circulation. So that was the point of the very high ceilings. I look at it and go, how do you hate that? Well, that wasn't what he was quite as concerned with. Um, The use of restraints and punishments was minimized. From the very beginning, the very first superintendent, I believe his last name was Holden, was very clear that he would use as few restraints as possible, even though other hospitals in Ohio were not as careful about that. He was very strong in his belief that the use of restraint was detrimental to patients. Um, So there were only two what they called strong rooms and they made them look as nice as a regular patient's room. It was just padded so that people couldn't hurt themselves. Um, They also did this. um, In addition to occupational therapy, they did art therapy and music therapy. Um, what we would call that. At the time, yeah. it
2: wasn't exactly called therapy,
1: but it was... But that's what it... Con- yeah, yeah, the concept.
2: Yeah, the concept was replace bad thoughts, fancies, ideas, feelings with useful work with art, with beauty, you basically redirect yourself.
1: Which is a principle used in DBT now, dialectical behavioral ther- uh, therapy. Um so the architect was Levi Schofield of Cleveland and the landscape designer was Herman Harlan of Cincinnati, who was a student of Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park. So that tells you why it was so beautiful. And it was. It, it is still beautiful. The grounds are also absolutely gorgeous. Um, it had rooms for 542 patients. Men were housed on the East Wing, women in the West. There were 252 single rooms for patients, which they made very small, so as to disincline superintendents in the in the future to put more than one patient in those single rooms so it was meant to make it so that you couldn't crowd people in that was that was the logic of that and then there was room for 290 more patients in dormitory style rooms but they still weren't bed upon bed upon bed they were still spread out and and made uh pleasant and home-like. It opened in 1874.
2: And we've already talked about the trains, which is awesome. And it was the first asylum that built communal dining facilities.
1: It used to be that the dumb waiters took the food straight up to the wards and each ward ate in their own, you know, by themselves so the you stayed with your same people all the time. They had their first dining room built for patients and also for staff to eat together in a more family-like believe, setting.
2: I was about to say, I believe it was to encourage people to feel comfortable and to socialize because that was something normal people did. And the mindset was treat the mentally ill like they're normal people and they will feel better. And they will act like normal people. I can't really fault that logic. Um, As a mentally ill person, I would like to be treated like a normal person. Thank you. As long as your idea of treating me like a normal person isn't saying you don't need meds. Because I like mine. Thank you
1: very much. (laughs) Yes. Um, The most excitable and loud patients were kept in the furthest ends of the wings of the building. Um, They also, interestingly, as I said before, they had an open door policy. That was from the very beginning where non-suicidal patients and people who were trustworthy could wander at will and travel into town at times. Also the very first female doctor Of Zanesville, Ohio, Dr. Agnes Johnson was hired in 1881 to improve the care of female patients. That's extremely progressive. And in
2: 1880, when it got 633 patients, they realized it was beginning to be overcrowded. So they started building cottages to house additional patients instead of just
1: jamming them in. And the cottages are still there and cute. Yes, they are. Some Well, you know what? Some of the co- what you think of as cottages, those are the little ones. Actually, mm-hmm. what they were calling cottages were bigger. Like the um, tuberculosis ward was a cottage. The house that now houses the Voinovich School of Communication. Oh, yeah. That big thing. It looks like a it looks like a mansion yeah. to me that was a cottage yeah. it with air quotes
0: but sitting next to that giant building it's a cottage, it is a cottage. Oh, yeah
1: compared to that that gigantic <laughs> thing it, yeah
0: The building dwarfs those mansions
1: yes um <clears throat> so why were people you know that that's mostly the good stuff and most of this yeah. comes from the book asylum on the hill written by katherine ziff who is a local to athens and a historian it is a very readable book and I'll give the contact information for the book in the show notes, which are going to be extensive for this episode. Also, And
2: I think that is an amazing start. That yeah. is an amazing start. That was a great concept. Yeah. That makes the word asylum mean what the word asylum actually means, which is a place of yeah. safety. And respite. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. I want to go there. Right? Yeah. My kids mean, are no, making you... me nuts.
0: <laughs> There's a pandemic. So
1: <laughs> why were people admitted into the asylum? The first person who was admitted, was she was either 11 or 14, depending upon which story you read. But she had epilepsy. And there is yes. a high proportion of people who came to the asylum with epilepsy.
2: Here's where we're going to start touching on some not necessarily awesome stuff and go full on into the bad things.
0: Yes. yes. We, we got the
1: good stuff first. Billy Milligan accepted. He's not so good.
0: I'm still hot about that. That's uh, why I'm quiet. I'm calming myself down.
1: <laughs> um. Yeah. So why were people... Um, committed to the asylum and how were they committed and as I said before they were committed by a judge and a medical doctor who investigated the um, the person who was brought by their family or their spouse Um, so for men One of the first things I noticed was there were a lot of Civil War veterans, and they show classic symptoms of what we now call PTSD.
0: I'd just really like to add that during the time of all this beginning, that region of the United States was going strong. It was the place to be. So it was highly populated, very progressive, a lot of just things happening it wasn't tucked away in southeast ohio it was the it was the western reserve it was pushing you know even later it was still pushing the edges
1: yeah absolutely into the early
0: 1900s it the mining was the rage but that's a whole nother episode
1: and we will get to that yes um so a lot of men were um were committed with PTSD. They couldn't continue to work on their farms. Some of them had problems speaking. They Loud noises bothered them. Oh, this is a big surprise. You know? I,
0: I can't imagine coming out of wars with cannons.
1: That's just horrifying.
0: And the surgery technology was not, I hate to say cutting edge, but that's really the phrase I'm looking for that's just a horror the whole era was a horror show.
2: The Civil War was awful
0: it, yeah it
2: was just oh God
1: yeah interestingly there, there it wasn't no just worry. men before, right and it wasn't just veterans. there were people who were committed because they lost their sons and they yeah. did not get over it um women and men both uh, fathers and mothers. Were committed because they lost their children. Um, the The other big thing that that men had issues with was the long depression. Uh, economic issues caused a long depression. Right about the time that the that the facility opened, and so men were losing their money. They were losing their businesses. They were losing their farms. And this caused mental distress. And so they would be committed for that.
2: What now we would call extreme anxiety.
1: Yes. And
2: depression. Yes.
1: Yes. For women, the number one issue was postpartum issues. Um, One woman was committed for having five children in six years. And she is described as having postpartum depression, which they didn't call it that they didn't know what it was. I don't even think they called it the baby Blues, which is what yes. it was called in the fifties um but very clearly that was what was going on. but sometimes it was it was just women having menstrual problems, what they called difficulty with their menses. Or hysteria. This is now. Here it comes. Here it comes. Here comes the misogyny. It's coming.
2: Again is another issue that we've had in asylums and in mental health care from the beginning. Misogyny and classism and racism are all plaguing issues in the mental health, in the history of mental health and mental health care.
1: Yes, absolutely. Sorry. I just. Nope, it, it truly is a plaguing, it, plaguing it's, issues. It's nope. You're fine. Yeah, you're not making me mad because you're absolutely right. And again, for both sexes, epilepsy was an issue because they didn't know what to do with them. No. Which is just they didn't know what caused it. Healthcare lagging. Yeah. Um there were also instances where commitment was clearly used for social control. And this is where we get into the dark side of
2: the darker,
1: the darker side of Victorian ideas about mental health and health. Um, There was a coal miner who was committed for starting, trying to start a labor union in Nelsonville in 1887. Nelsonville, Ohio is a small town. Now it's about 10 minutes away from Athens. Then it was probably about an hour's ride from Athens on a horse or on a muddy road. Um, But he tried to start a labor union. He came from West Virginia, so he's one of my peeps. (laughs) He came from West Virginia and was a firebrand and was brought to the judge and the judge asked what plagued him. And he said that he wanted to start a labor union. And I'm like, well, clearly he's crazy because wow, who wants to be paid well to go down into a a dark and scary mine and dig around in there for, you know, pennies and who wants you know, safety for widows and pensions for widows, and who wants some safety down in the mines? That's clearly that is a, a sign track. that you are insane. Yeah. yeah. So I'm getting sarcastic here. Um, that made me mad. Then I read about the tailor who took up painting morbid looking art in 1874. He was essentially committed because people didn't like his art. He was committed because, and there's no description from the commitment papers that say what the art looked like. Of course, I, I want to know, but I, I want to know too, because yeah, for all we know,
0: teachers said kittens
1: like, right. It's like what is morbid art? Well, apparently the judge believed that he was too intelligent to make art that looked like that. Oh, so maybe that is an artist.
0: He drew pictures of the alligator eating kittens.
1: That might have been <laughs> it. I just I, it, it was pre alligator, but you never know. Maybe he, he I, psychically sh- knew the alligator was there. Is no
0: timeline. It's a spider web. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. So that was that's a that's a social control thing, and that's yeah. not cool. Um. A daughter was fetched home from having run away from Athens to Cincinnati where she was found in a brothel. I don't know that she was working in a brothel. I don't know if she ran away on her own, if a madam or a pimp lured her away, if she had syphilis from having worked in a brothel. It's not explained.
2: If she was just poor and that was the only room she could afford to rent and that's why she was staying in a brothel. Uh-huh. There's no or way to if- know. They were the only people who were going to help a young mm-hmm. woman wandering about.
1: Yeah, who, there's no telling she was, you know that. So that's that's another. If a if a a daughter from a good family runs away to a brothel, clearly social control is necessary. Um, and then there was the issue with women being committed by their husbands because. They had the menopause, or they had menstrual issues, or they weren't as pretty as they used to be, and they were shrill, or hysterical, or they were these
0: over that guy's crap. (laughs) That's That's what it is. They were like, "I'm done. You're done." (laughs) <laughs> you're a jerk <laughs> and how dare you have an affair right? uh-huh
1: and, and i have that on uh good authority from a person who witnessed it firsthand who was an <sighs> intern there in the 1970s in the early 70s um she worked with women who were more functional and were in one of the cottages and every last one of them had been committed by their husbands, and this she is heard the same basic story over and over and over. This is something
2: that has been happening since Bethlehem.
0: Yes, you guys are English. like, why are you guys mad? I don't know. Yep, female reasons.
1: Yep, it's just female <sighs> trouble.
0: That's why yep. we're
2: crazy. Yeah, and yeah. that that is that is one of the issues with asylums is they were abused by society.
0: To- patriarchy sucks, and the thing about patriarchy is it sucks for everyone. It, it sucks for does. men. It sucks for boys. It sucks for women. And I feel the need to point that out. That it's not just we we're women and we're against the patriarchy. Because we're women and we're not part of the power structure. That's not the point. The point is the patriarchy is problematic for everyone.
2: And if you did not fit in for whatever reason, if it was more expedient, if you needed to be gotten rid of, but they couldn't have you murdered because, well, this was modern times, then they could do the next best thing and clap you in a, clap you in a madhouse. And that's a trope for
1: a reason. Because it happened. Yeah. Just ask Nellie Bly about it, for real. Okay, and now we come to
0: Doctor Icepick.
1: Yes, Doctor Icepick. I. know
2: It's my turn to get rid of it. It really is
1: mad. your turn to just go off, girl. Just do it. Okay. Just First, do it. I'll help you.
2: Free France. This man. Had no grasp of the scientific method. This man should have been stopped. This man should have been stopped so much earlier. I don't understand the AMA. I don't understand anything. I don't understand. I don't understand. And if I could go back in time and shake somebody, it would be this person.
0: You'd ice pick the ice pick. Come here, son.
2: Or take him forward in time and be like, look at what you did.
0: Come here, son, take some patriarchy right in the temple.
2: (laughs) So Dr. Walter Freeman. Dr. Walter Freeman. Dr. Walter Freeman who deserves a good hard smack. Yeah. Wanted to help mentally ill people because he saw overcrowding of asylums across the US and he was horrified. He was a doctor. He was not a neurosurgeon. He was not a surgeon. Mm -hmm. He was a doctor, a regular old doctor, read about a lobotomy done in Portugal by Dr. Monitz in 1935 and was inspired. Now, the lobotomy done in 1935 was done fairly carefully, if you can call any kind of a lobotomy done carefully by drilling holes into several sections of a brain and coring small pieces out
1: of it in an effort
2: to relieve symptoms of mental illness.
1: Now, mind you, there were no good drugs for anything back then.
2: Thorazine had not even been invented. There, the, the... pretty much what you had to work with for nervous complaints and such was you had barbiturates and you
1: had electroconvulsive therapy therapy and And you you had had hydrotherapy, which is basically throwing someone in freezing cold water, wrapping them up in freezing cold cloth and keeping them in there. And it basically shocks your system. That was the point of it. Is it was supposed to shock your system. Dull your senses. But really. I, that one. I, I, I can't wrap my head around torture. that.
2: That was torture. And it then. Moments, but It was torture.
1: And then they also came up with this great idea. Called an insulin shock where they used insulin on people who did not have diabetes. These are just people with normal, you know, metabolisms. And gave them insulin to force them into a diabetic coma. And then, hopefully, they came out of the coma, and they were subdued after that. And these were all supposed to somehow snap people out of having mental illness. And, hmm. I will say ECT did work in a limited way for a limited number of people. Um, which is why they still use ECT today
2: on a limit with very limited applications.
1: Yes, they uh, don't
2: the, use any of these other things. Yeah, the
1: hydrotherapy maybe in a weird spa somewhere. Somewhere somebody thinks cold water baths is a great idea, but they don't tie you in the tub. And that sort of thing. And you sign up for that on your own. You know. Yes. Yeah. As for the diabetic coma, that's a big no, no, nobody does that.
2: People did not, at the time, understand how mental illness worked. They still didn't. They had just gotten to the point of realizing that personality lived in your brain. They had, they had come to the conclusion that mental illness had something to do with the physical structures in your mind, which is where the idea of lobotomy came from, because they had vague ideas about which parts of your brain did what for the first time, since, honestly, the ancient Greeks. And yeah, pretty much. or or there were other things like flip on, the the head knob
1: people oh um head
0: knob people
1: the the f- f- phrenologists phrenologists. Phrenologists. Right? Yes. phrenologists head knob people oh right. my god I couldn't I wanted to say it's okay and I knew that yeah and then phlebotomy is that, is drawing blood from people blood. you started to say that and I'm like what is going head on, on. I, it's, then. Then they said the head knob, and then I realized.
2: I promise I'm not dumb. No, you're not. No, you're not. Um, But this was where the concept of lobotomy came from. And I can see where they were going with this. And Dr. Freeman reads about this and is like, this is a great idea. Now, bear in mind. He's not a surgeon, so he needs to go find a surgeon for his brilliant plan to relieve overcrowding in asylums across the United States and relieve people of being mentally ill and fix people and save them from their inner demons and render them happy again. And so he hooks up with Dr. James Watts and in the U.S. in 1936, they perform the very first prefrontal lobotomy on Patient Alice Hood. Okay. This was a success. This was considered a success because she was no longer suicidally depressed. And she was happy.
1: And and she she wasn't wasn't delusional anymore.
2: And she wasn't delusional and she wasn't miserable all the time. And that initial success, as far as I can tell, gave Dr. Freeman the idea that this was going to work every single time and was perfect. Yeah. Because he just took off running. Yeah. And he never stopped. And he never looked back. And he did not. He didn't. It's not that he didn't keep records. Like, he wrote down patients that came to him and that he performed lobotomies on. And then he didn't and was, like, cured or not cured, sort of. He sort of did this. Yeah, he didn't go back and check on them until the last three years of his life to see if this was going to keep working. No patient
0: continuity. So
1: yeah, and and the way that that they did it at at first was the same way that Dr. Monitz did it in Portugal. They drilled through the skull and they had a little, uh, sort of like a spatula looking implement that went into the hole and just sort of it was very delicate the way that was, dr watts did it Freeman's was
2: a neurosurgeon
1: all freeman did was basically direct it he didn't actually yeah. have hands on
2: and this was great and then he realized there's a problem here well before that oh you're right i'm sorry i'm
1: jumping cannot, ahead please, in my frustration please do not jump ahead because in 1937 He lobotomized Rosemary Kennedy, was one of the Kennedy sisters who was probably born developmentally disabled because of lack of oxygen, because she was held in her mother's birth canal for two hours waiting for the doctor, which that can cause brain damage
2: because He's the cord
1: because the cord could have been pinched essentially and the the it would have kept oxygen from getting into her body sufficiently but she was she was slower than the other children to develop she was emotionally volatile and she, it hmm. was this could not happen in the kennedy family because no Joe Kennedy, who was the father, was the, um, he had political aspirations and he became, during World War II, the ambassador to Great Britain. And she was problematic. She kept running away from the convent where she was staying to be educated and was apparently running about with local men. And going dancing. And going dancing. God forbid that she should do that. But he had political aspirations for three of his sons, who we all know who they are. It was John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and Ted Kennedy. So we, we know he had these aspirations for his sons. And he didn't want any scandals from any of his daughters to... Destroy that. So he found out about Dr. Freeman's lobotomies because Freeman had gone to the press with this glowing report from these handful of lobotomies that he and Watt had done and uh, how great they were, how they, they changed people's lives. Now, it is said that the mother, Rose Kennedy, did not know it was going to happen until it had already happened. However, one of her sisters, one of Rosemary's sisters said, this is not true that she had been asked by both parents to investigate it and find out what kind of procedure it was. And she had reported to her mother and father, both. No, we don't want that for Rosemary. No, that's bad. But, Joe Kennedy scheduled it and it was done and it was done through the skull with a drill. She was awake during the procedure. She was reciting poetry to the nurses who were in attendance and Freeman directed Dr. Watts to continue probing and coring at her frontal lobes until she went silent. Which is she, the saddest and most horrifying thing ever. She could not speak for years. She could not walk afterwards. She could not control her um, body. And she disappeared. The children were told that she was training to be a teacher's aide and was working, I think, in an orphanage or something, but that wasn't the truth. And it wasn't until after Joe Kennedy had a stroke that the truth came out. And that's when Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy and the sisters and Ted Kennedy went to see their sister It was the first time they had seen her in years by then she could speak and walk but she limped she never danced again and that okay we're back to misogyny children yep we're back we're back
0: yep and No. Except the end result wasn't a healthy person. It was someone who was subdued. Yes, That's all yes. they wanted.
2: And that yes. was the point of so it.
0: That was his success. Was He got a subdued human being.
2: By 1942, Watts and Freeman had performed over 200 lobotomies. I want you to notice that number. 200 by 1942. So in 1937, how many do you think they had done? And un, I'm sorry. I'm just the the complete and utter lack of scientific or medical,
1: just anything procedure. The, the The procedure was just
2: of of care. I mean, when you think about the the proof that you have to have in this day and age before you just come up with a new anything. I just—they
1: mm. did a very few before 1937. It was a handful,
2: and they had done 200, and they published their results, claiming 63% of patients had improved, 24 were reported to be unchanged, and 14% were worse after surgery. Freeman went to the press, and he was a media darling. He really, really seemed to enjoy the media. And he got lots of media attention and he beat that drum.
0: Where have we heard that before?
1: Billy Milligan. Ha! Huh?
0: hmm
1: And he then
2: started thinking about the problem with what he wanted to do with this, which was clear out asylums, help the max. This is what he wanted. He wanted to help overcrowding. Most asylums don't have an operating theater.
1: It also was slow drilling slow. through the brain.
2: You need a surgeon. Most there's not surgeons in most asylums. There's usually at most a general practitioner. And uh, anesthesia. It takes too long. He reads about doing brain surgery through the eye sockets. There
1: was an Italian doctor doing it.
2: And so he came up with this idea called a transorbital lobotomy, the infamous ice pick lobotomy. And it's called the ice pick lobotomy because when he was developing this, he brought an ice pick from his house.
1: I hope he sterilized it.
2: it. I'm sure he sterilized it, actually. I really do. He might have been...
1: Yeah, he what? must he must have believed Lister was correct and and because Watts it.
2: Watts was still involved at this point.
1: Yes. And he was a legit surgeon. He
2: was a legit neurosurgeon. And honestly, I have some respect for Watts. He came up with this idea. And to begin this, it the the concept of a transorbital lobotomy was that it could be done as an outpatient procedure. Yes, brain surgery is an outpatient procedure.
1: Yes, he had people come to his office in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. as outpatients. And And it could be done. Sorry. And he didn't use anesthesia.
2: No, no. He knocked you out with an ECT machine. because an
1: electroconvulsive therapy machine.
2: Because those were there. In every asylum, because ECT therapy was practiced in asylums. Now,
1: mind you, you are not knocked out for a very long period of time. So it had to be done quickly, within minutes. He
2: would knock you out, wait until you quit twitching, because you would. You would twitch. And then he would hammer the ice pick. Or a tool that he had made that looked pretty much exactly the same. Through <clears throat> the eye socket
0: right by the, the corner,
2: window. Right. And then he would get through your brain. He would just hammer it in there. And then he would swish it back and forth.
1: Literally, he is described as moving the ice pick back and forth in a non... In a In a fashion that did not look planned. Is what I read one description as.
0: Um, No rhyme or reason. Pull it
1: out. Do it on the other side. Sometimes he would do both sides at the same time. And there is ample eyewitness testimony. That he liked making other doctors. Who were watching this to learn the procedure. Faint. So he was a showman about it. Which is
2: just one he's not a surgeon i just need to remind everybody he's not a surgeon he's definitely not a neurosurgeon how does he know how deeply to put this ice pick he doesn't there's no specific movement that he's using as far as i can tell i this is not surgery this is mutilation yeah and the reason this applies this oh watts left in 1950 after this started he was like no this is horrible this isn't surgery this is this is brutal and mutilation and isn't going to help anybody and if it does you're ju- you're not helping them you're just rendering them
1: less difficult and Compliant. he he we come it. back to social
2: control mhm He's not banned from doing this until 1967.
1: Yeah, so he came to Athens. He went on a tour of the country, going from asylum to asylum, in his car, which he called the Lobotomobile. He didn't
2: actually do call it that.
1: He didn't? I read that in he like didn't. three or four different places. He
2: didn't. That press is- did. The press did. He did not. Okay. The press well, referred to it as that. Okay. Good. I will give him that. He did not think he was an evil, weird version of Batman. The press <laughs> called him that.
1: Okay. Fair. <laughs> um. I. I will stand In the down. In
2: of accuracy.
1: I will stand down. We are here to bust myths. Um. And but- he doesn't need help blackening his name. No, he doesn't. Um. So he went to all these different asylums. Uh he called one tour of asylums in West Virginia, his West Virginia lobotomy tour. And he had great successes there, particularly among women and African-American people. You see, there's a percentage of people who, a higher percentage of people who were given lobotomies and women were one of those percentages and African-Americans were another one. And he really liked African-American women because he said he believed that their families would give better post-operative treatment. This is from the lobotomist by Jack L. High. It is a, a biography of Dr. Freeman and the The writer really was appalled to find that out. He was horrified when he found that out. He writes in an essay about writing the book that he was so distraught to find that out. But 70% of lobotomies done in the United States during those years, not just by him, but by other doctors, were on women. Now, what does this say?
2: This is this is a form of social control clearly and it's awful and again racism misogyny are plagues upon the mental health care industry
0: patriarchy and screws everyone
1: so he went to Athens to the state hospital here more times than any other asylum in Ohio it started in- 7 times he he started coming here in 1953. He was adored by the media, and he was treated essentially as a celebrity. Um, that is kind of horrifying. Over 200 lobotomies were done by him here in Athens, and uh, but by the 1950s, uh, by about 1955, 56. We had the first long-term studies of lobotomy patients come out, and the numbers were not great. Um, actual medical researchers looked into the statistics, and they were not good. Because and... he had not been keeping track. No. No, he would just go to these these state hospitals and, hey, do you have anybody who needs a lobotomy and he charged 25 bucks a pop for each of these procedures and he did them back to back to back like a assembly line. He was the and there are pictures. He was, he was the Henry Ford of freaking psychosurgery. It, it's psycho butchery.
2: I can't even dignify with calling it surgery. It's not it, Well surgery. it's not it's surgery. A, it's, it's a It's like PT Barnum saying he's a vet, a freaking veterinarian. It's no.
1: (laughs) I only laugh because the idea of PT Barnum as a veterinarian is
2: exactly. It's the same level of no. You were abusive as heck to animals, and so was your circus. I so I get so mad.
1: He continued to do surgery until he was finally barred from doing this in 1967. He had stopped going from asylum to asylum and had gone to uh, California. And he started working on children. And there was a boy, well, he did it on a four-year-old in the 1960s, but the the patient that I'm thinking of was 12, and his name was Howard Dully, and he was taken to Dr. Freeman by his stepmother, and she described him as being defiant with her, and he didn't get out of bed willingly in the morning, and he, I don't know, I think he chewed with his mouth open. He acted like a 12 year old boy, is what he did. He didn't, I think he did not like to bathe. I believe that was another one. Again, 12-year-old boy behavior. And he said, oh, yes, he would clearly be helped by lobotomy. So he was lobotomized. And in 2007, Howard Dully and a co-author, Charles Fleming, wrote My Lobotomy, a memoir. And you can see him on a video on YouTube talking about how he was never right after that. And he always and felt like something had been taken from him. and Because it was. And Dr. Freeman took a photograph of this boy in the middle of surgery with, a, with the instrument sticking out of his eye socket. This is so wrong. I can't and- even... And, and so finally, in 1967, his medical license was taken from him. 15%
2: of all patients who
1: were lobotomized died as a result of the procedure. There, Yeah, he had someone die of a hemorrhage. And that was when his license was taken from him.
0: I'm surprised that number is that low.
1: I am too. A hundred people, all told, died of hemorrhage, specifically. And what bothers me so much about this is he literally really did have the idea that he was helping people and that he wanted to help people. And there are people who were children when their mothers had the lobotomy who say, he gave me my mother back. But, I mean, they were six years old, so I don't know how much judgment they had in those sorts of matters. And it is possible that, you know, if he didn't completely butcher the frontal lobe, that he might have possibly helped some people.
2: But his definition of help... Yeah. And the defi- what really put him out of business, I think, was
1: the introduction of Thorazine. It was absolutely what put him out of business. Uh, pretty much... Every person who writes on the subject has said that the introduction of Thorazine and then later other um, psychoactive medicines is is what stopped it.
2: That, to me, is this is another piece of the bad part of Athens, the Athens Asylum, because, yes, 200 people had their brains butchered by... I... by an extremely, at best, a criminally misguided doctor who should have known better.
1: We originally meant to only do one episode on the ridges, but as we were recording and we came to the two-hour mark and hadn't even touched upon the hauntings that are regularly reported at the old asylum, we knew we'd have to split it into two episodes. We also realized that we couldn't possibly end this episode with our usual funny little sign-off because there's very little we can find to laugh about this time around. So instead of all three of us joking about how you shouldn't talk with some paranormal personage or another, you have me soberly saying, If you have any thoughts, questions, or want to talk about anything involving this episode, please contact us on Facebook, or through 6djk67 at gmail.com. We will answer you promptly, and we always like to hear from you. And as always, if you have a paranormal experience you want to tell us about, please send us an email. Until next week, stay well, stay safe, and dodge the ice and snow as well as you can. Thank you for listening.